Encore episode. The not entirely new, but definitely improved way to measure primary care. Today, I speak with Rebecca Etz. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I wanted to resurface this episode because when it originally aired over a year ago, the topic may have been ever so slightly ahead of its time. Look, here we are right now with everybody trying to do three big things relative to measuring PCP performance. Thing one, come up with a fair measure for PCP performance. Two, account for diverse populations with diverse risks so that some docs don't get dinged because their patient populations have lots of comorbidities or behavioral health challenges or live in food deserts or any one of the other social determinants of health. And thing three, not make measuring performance a total procedural nightmare, right? We want fair measures. We want to account for equity issues, essentially. And we want this whole measurement fandango to be as easy as possible. Enter Rebecca Etz, PhD, and the Larry Green Center with a really well-validated instrument, as she calls it, to measure primary care performance. I can think of more than one PCP, frankly, right off the top of my head, who would be thrilled to be measured using this methodology. Even more so because it's one thing that's simple and not a jumble of numerators with various mix-and-match denominators. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. PCPs are really important to population health. Primary care is the foundation of any well-functioning health system. I am sure many listening to this podcast know well. For the triple aim to happen, patients really need access to robust primary care. This has been affirmed by almost anyone who looks into it. And yet, in this country, our system sort of anemically supports our primary care colleagues. As a general statement, poking and prodding and procedures are compensated at a far higher rate than anything requiring cognitive services. What a PCP or a pediatrician mainly does all day is really cognitive. It's listening and thinking and counseling and coordinating. But here is maybe an underappreciated point. If we're going to measure PCP performance, then we need the right measures to measure that performance. You might be doing this measurement as a basis for incentives or maybe for continuous improvement programs. Either way, if you don't have the right measures, then maybe great primary care is under-rewarded or your continuous improvement process is counterproductive. You're incenting the wrong things, you get the wrong activity. And to add to that, PCPs, you know, practices can spend upwards of $40,000 a year of uncompensated time trying to, you know, add and subtract and tote up the difference in all these varied and potentially inapplicable measurement standards coming at them from all manner of directions. My guest today is Rebecca Atz, Ph.D., Dr. Etz and the team over at the Larry Green Center have worked hard to create a set of 11 performance measures for primary care. These measures went through the ringer as far as their creation and validation. These 11 measures take into account what patients want, what primary care clinicians, including pediatricians, nurse practitioners, and others, think is most important and possible to provide, and what payers want to pay for. 
These 11 measures are aligned across the three stakeholders, and they are actionable. Rebecca Etz, PhD, is Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Co-Director of the Larry Green Center, which is in Richmond, Virginia, at the Virginia Commonwealth University. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Rebecca Etz, PhD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Well, thank you, Stacey. It's so great to be here. I keep running, you know, stumbling across conversations with various stakeholders in the healthcare industry who seem to be continuously looking for proof that PCPs drive results. This research on one side exists, but so few seem to be aware of the fact, you know, like UHC came out the other day with some kind of article talking about how, you know, PCPs have impacted outcomes, patient outcomes. And everyone was like, whoa, that's new. It stymies me. I honestly don't know. It's perhaps one of the best kept secrets. But just recently, there was a world declaration by the World Health Assembly where they reaffirmed that primary care globally delivers on that promise. It provides for, when well supported, it provides for better health outcomes, better experience of the healthcare system, and smarter spending. And in fact, if you look at all the countries as they're compared by the World Health Organization, the countries that are actually top in health outcomes and then ironically lower in spending are the ones that have invested in primary care. And that, that information is very clear. We have wonderful colleagues in many universities and at the Robert Graham Center in D.C., at the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare in D.C., they do a, a tremendous amount of data collection on this and, and publish on it with some frequency, as does the Harvard Center for Primary Care. And yet somehow it continues to remain a mystery to people. I'm, I'm not really sure why that is. <laughs> yeah, there was also recently a Milliman report on this kind of same exact topic that got a lot of buzz. Yeah, and the Milbank report does a lot of great stuff and the Commonwealth Fund and Mathematica. There are a lot of places that put this information out. You know, if you just probably look at the economic incentives that are out there, I'm not sure how many people it behooves to advance the cause of primary care. Well, and ironically, we have some research that shows us that when primary care is performing well, specialty care actually increases efficiency. And that's because we are able to keep out of specialty care the things they don't really need to be doing that kind of clog up their works. And when we transfer a patient to specialty care, we've done a fair amount of assessing. So we we make an effective transfer with good information and a clear understanding of what this particular person needs. That coordination element of primary care is really important. So everybody actually benefits. I would kind of wonder at the motivations of anyone who's threatened by that statement. Right. You have spent a lot of work creating a set of measures to measure primary care. Before we get into what those measures are, what was the problem that you were aiming to solve? Like, why why did you go there? Most of the measures that we have are actually created not in primary care. They're created in specialty care. They are disease-specific or disease-process-specific, and that's not a very good fit for primary care. About 80% of what primary care sees is undifferentiated systems, and they have to act absent any diagnosis. So the fact that they are assessed solely by known diagnoses and processes that relate to those diagnoses are a problem. Primary care sees everything. 
that's their purpose. They, they see everything, everything that a human can possibly come in with. So to try to measure them based on each individual illness is really a, a fool's errand. The other side of that is those guidelines are created for specific diseases only. Here's what you do for somebody who has diabetes and nothing but diabetes. And no regular human usually walks around with only one issue. They usually have a combination of issues. Perhaps the most undervalued aspect of primary care is that they have to figure out how to prioritize and optimize the picture for you. Yeah, for sure. And that's the first thing that I was thinking about. If you have, let's just say, misaligned measures, you know, I think we're all pretty familiar with what perverse economic incentives (laughs) can accomplish. If you're measuring people using the wrong measures, you know, at a, let's just say, best case scenario, a doctor knows the right thing to do, but they're being pulled in all these random directions, which aren't getting us anywhere just because they're trying to meet some measure, which is pretty unapplicable in whatever situation. So, you know, you just kind of get scattered, non-productive, inefficient activity. Maybe even more compelling or, or damaging is that what's the purpose of a measure? Oh, to figure out who's doing a good job and who's doing a not so good job, maybe, but also to provide a feedback loop because you need some sort of feedback loop if you're going to continuously improve. So if you if the measures are completely inapplicable, then also you kind of get yourself into this stuck situation where if you do improve your measures, you don't necessarily improve care. Like I can just see how it would turn into a mess really fast. And obviously it sort of has. Yeah. And, you know, measures, you started to say this and you're right on point. Measures are a form of communication and they are how we let somebody know these are the things that you're doing that we think are most valuable about you. And this is how well we think we're, you're doing with them. Right. And so if the way that you are assessed does not actually match up with the work you do or what you find to be important, it's pretty demoralizing. If the way that you're paid is then also aligned with that, it's actually a threat to your survival. Primary care gets measured on the strangest of things. We get measured as if it were a cottage industry. And, you know, how many minutes did you spend on the phone call and how many minutes did you spend with the patient and what particular service did you provide and did you call them back. Okay. So you have put together some measures. I think one of the things, and I definitely like to go through them. I think one of the things that I noted right out of the gate is that there's no biometrics and there's no process in the measures that you've put together. So do you want to kind of um, run through the measures and then maybe you can kind of, as you're doing so, address, you know, it would seem to be perfectly logical to measure people on their A1C or some biometric outcome, if you will. That's not part of your, what you've got going on there. We started with going to the people who deliver care, who receive care, and who pay for care. So the payers, the clinicians, and the patients. And we asked them all open-ended questions. How do you know good care when you see it? What's most important to you about that care? And we started there. And it turns out when you ask patients what's most important about their care, and when you ask clinicians what's most important about care, they don't say things like, A1C. They say things like, did you get the care you needed at the time you needed it and in the way that you needed it? Was your care coordinated across multiple settings? Did it take into account your family and community? Did we look at all aspects of your care? So that's not just the physical, it's the mental, it's the emotional, it's the spiritual, it's social factors, it's your full person. When you come into primary care, 
you bring in with you your biology and your biography. And we take both of those things into account when assessing how we can take care of the problems and opportunities that present today. It's a measure that is driven by what patients want and seek and what clinicians most hope to provide and what payers expect from the system. First of all, you really went back to first principles, if you will, like what actually matters here to the parties involved. Like we don't need to. That's right. <laughs> so you're just like, we're getting too too fancy for our own good. Let's just go back to the very beginning and try to figure out what patients, providers, and payers like actually want. That's right. And so the biomarkers aren't there because the biomarkers are really important. Those are clinical measures and we need them. And we need as many clinical measures as we can get to guide our clinical decision-making. It's not the same thing as quality. It is the outcome of healthcare, but it is not the same thing as quality. Just to drill into that a sec, because I think this is a really important point, and I'm not exactly sure whether I necessarily understand sort of the distinction. You're saying we all know at this juncture that something like only 20% of anyone's healthcare outcomes are derived from anything that goes on in the clinic. You know, like 80% of somebody's health has to do with, you know, social determinants of health. It has to do with genetics. It right. has to do with behavior. What you're saying is in the primary care space, and, and I think it is, and you mentioned this, but I think it's important to reiterate, like we're not talking about specialists at this juncture. We're not talking about endocrinologists like per se, you know, so we're talking right. about what goes on in primary care and what a primary care doctor can effectuate, right? The kind of the point that you're making is that what is quality in primary care, first of all, may not be the same thing as quality for a specialist, which is very disease focused. But it's also less about necessarily getting someone to any particular end game that someone decides is the end game that we're striving for. It's more about coaching the journey. That's right. So if you have a person in front of you and they have multiple things going on with them, it may not be the best choice to focus on, you know, item A if item B is more pressing. And that is the prioritizing that primary care does. So while we may have a guideline that says every time you come in, we should check your A1C, in primary care, you go in for everything. So what if we have a smoker who is overweight, has diabetes, and does not have enough money to buy healthy foods and can't afford the patch to help them get off of smoking. There's a whole host of issues they have there, and we can't address them all. We have to pick some that we can address, and that means that we let some go for another day. That may look poor on a quality measure, but for that patient at that point in time, it may be just the right thing to do. And at an aggregate level, why do you feel like clinical measures shouldn't be on the table. If you look at any one given patient at any one given time, for sure. But why wouldn't you hold a PCP accountable at on the aggregate to have a population that has an A1C of whatever? I hear what you're saying about the A1C, and that's a, a good example. I might bring it to weight because I think that's an example that just about everybody can make sense of. If we consider weight to be a quality measure for a clinician, there's only so much that they can do, right? They can talk to you about your weight every single time. They can tell you what the benefits are of being underweight. They can tell you strategies you can use and the exercises you should do. They can coach you on your nutrition. Weight is really hard for many people to manage. It's hard not to eat ice cream. It's hard to be motivated to exercise. And what your doctor says to you may or may not have a role in that for you. 
And yet we hold doctors 100% accountable for that. That's a health measure. We need to monitor it. We need to pay attention to it. But all the activities that I do, if they help you to move just a little bit, but we can't see a weight change for you in a one-year time span, does that mean that I've provided poor quality care? No, I don't think so. It may be that we we just haven't gotten there yet and we're going to keep trying. What I'm picking up, setting up the these measures, what it is doing by having these measures be the quality measures and having that be synonymous, it's causing behavior amongst PCPs that we don't necessarily want to incent. It might not necessarily drive the kind of outcomes that we're looking for. You know what they say, sometimes the long way around is the shortest way home. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if you're trying to take a shortcut and all, all you're focusing on is like kind of these clinical measures, you might not necessarily be doing the patient the greatest service by trying to shortcut what should be potentially a longer conversation and lifestyle changes and, you know, things which again are out of your control. That's right. So it basically just creates an awkward unfortunate situation for all involved and the care that the patient and the provider and maybe the payer are ultimately looking for, it makes it more difficult to actually achieve. That's right. It creates a financial incentive to hit a target by any means necessary. It does not, we're interested in the means. That's the quality, right? How did you get there? And we want that to be high quality. What we pay for is not quality. What we pay for is get there by any means necessary. It creates poor outcomes for people. Even as we have had a national hyper-focus on hypertension and paid attention to what we think the upper threshold of blood pressure should be, we created in clinicians an incentive to do that above all else. And what we actually found, there's a, a wonderful study that shows what we actually found is, yeah, We successfully brought down blood pressure and stayed within the guidelines. And what happens is the number of people who were hospitalized for hypertension went down. What they don't say and what the study showed was that an almost equal number of people were hospitalized for hypotension. For them, if you're over the age of 65 or for any number of reasons, it's not actually a good thing for you to help hit that blood pressure target. And if you do, you are more likely to suffer hypotension and outcomes from that. What we should be paying attention to is what's the best care for you, what's most optimal given all your other conditions. That's not what we do. The problem is also that we've tied money to that. So we incentivize people to have good outcomes. And what that means is that electronic medical records are no longer simply databases that tell us what the health of the population is. They are databases that tell us what is the optimal picture that a clinician is able to paint of their patients. We do that sometimes, sadly, by firing patients or calling patients inactive if they haven't been in enough. There's a reason why many practices don't take on Medicaid patients. The system is set up to make it very difficult to provide care for people who are sick. It's really a shame. We had a huge lead up to this. (laughs) But 
Could you just roll down the measures that ultimately after this lengthy and very arduous process working with stakeholders across the industry you created? Sure. So it's 11 items. They get answered on a scale of definitely, mostly, somewhat, not at all. And they ask questions that are very easy for any patient to answer. Do they make it easy for you to access care? Does your doctor know you as a person? Does your practice coordinate your care across multiple places? Do they take into account all aspects of your health when determining your care? Do they take into account your family? Do they take into account your community? Do they know your health goals? Do they help you to stay healthy? These are very simple questions to be able to answer. The reading level is easy for everybody. And these are actionable things. If the patient says, no, my doctor does not know me as a person, I can do something with that. If the patient says, no, my doctor does not make it easy for me to get care. I can do something with that. And what do PCPs feel about this? You know, do they believe that these measures are more aligned and enable them to practice at the top of their license? They do. They love it. We have got resounding support from primary care clinicians. There is one question in the instrument that says, this doctor and I have been through a lot together. Sometimes we get questions about that because they say, well, what if I have all new patients or What if I haven't had any traumatic events with these patients? Am I going to get dinged? And that's actually an outcome of a measure system that is ill-fitted for its purpose. We shouldn't be worried about if there are things that we can get dinged on. We should be focused on what are the things I can do that provide the greatest potential to help my patients meet their optimum health goals. So They love this and it feels to them more in line with their purpose. Primary care is a relational field. It is based on the connection between a patient and their clinician or care team. And this is an instrument that recognizes that. So they love it. You had mentioned that there was payers that were involved in the construction of these measures. So let's talk about them for a sec, because obviously they're going to be worried about ROI, you know, like... Are we now actually getting better, more cost-effective care with this set of measures? When we validated this measure to show that it was meaningful and it worked, one of the things we did is, is very common in this methodology, which is to field it alongside other measures that produce meaningful outcomes that we as a system have decided that we like. So we fielded this measure against what's called the What Matters Index. And it is an instrument that has been shown to align both retroactively and prospectively to speak to cost and utilization. That's a huge ROI issue that all payers care about. How does this relate to cost and utilization? We found that our measure positively correlated with that index, which indicates if you get a good score on this measure, your patients are likely to have a lower health burden and to use less services in the healthcare system. That's a good thing. That's something everybody cares about. The other measure we fielded it alongside with is called the PEI, or the Patient Enablement Index. And that particular instrument assesses whether a patient feels that they can self-manage a bunch of their care and if they are confident in their understanding of what their health condition is. 
we know and payers readily recognize that self-management by patients is a huge issue that needs to be resolved. If patients are able to self-manage well, if they feel confident in their ability to self-manage, they're more likely to have a lower health burden and they are more likely to use fewer services. So again, that's that ROI. We are in the process of fielding this measure directly. Probably six months from now, we'll have hard data to show for a patient population in three different states, what was the total cost of the care? What was the cost of primary care? What were their health outcomes? And what was the primary care practices and clinician score using our instrument? And how does a physician group or a health system or a payer even operationalize this? You know, because with some of the other measures, I mean, granted, customer satisfaction scores have been part of many measure sets. But it sounds like for this, you know, if all we're measuring is blood pressure or something like that, you know, like the the doctor can submit on their own. But this actually requires the patients to be 100% of the measure set, you know, they're contributing to. So it would be really yeah. important that people are actually completing these in vast numbers. How do you make that happen? There is a mandate within the healthcare industry right now to actually gather patient reported measures. It's a problem, but it is one that everybody is facing at the same time. There are some vendors who provide that ability as a service. We do a lot of work with Prime, which is a quality registry run by the American Board of Family Medicine. It's one that actually provides the service to the clinicians who are in it, where they field it among your patients and then they let you know what the patient answers are. If you have an electronic medical record that has a patient portal, you can field it yourself in your patient portal. What we recommend is that you have patients answer it once a year in, during the month of their birth. That way the practice gets feedback all year round. Every month they get a new patch of information but the patients only have to do it once a year. So the burden on them is small. I'm assuming that you guys are also kind of collecting best practices around how to get patients to actually complete those surveys, for example, which, you know, is always a challenge. If you get a patient satisfaction survey, a lot of people worry that it's a popularity contest. And if they like me, they just score me all the high end. They don't really even read the questions because they want their doc to do well. They like their doc. And you see almost all practices scoring at 95% or higher on an instrument. That tells you that that instrument isn't really disturbing levels of quality because we know there's more variation than that in quality of care. With this instrument, what we found is people don't tend to do that. They use the full scope of questions. They use the full scale. And the scores that people have have great variety to them. It's a good indication that people are taking this seriously and answering it seriously and not simply answering it as a popularity contest. I mean, I can definitely see from the payer side, just because as you just articulated, this is highly correlated with downstream spend and, and all of the things that you've proven vis-a-vis some of the validation that you've done. So if I'm a payer, I'm assuming that you're getting some interest from that marketplace. We are, yeah. So there are a number of places in which we are fielding right now. The, I, I spoke about the Prime Registry. There is also a pilot going on in Colorado in which Anthem is involved. They are experimenting with new ways to pay primary care. And so this is one of the measures that they're considering using for that. When you see payers clinicians and patients 
all equally invested in the same instrument, it's got to be that it's capturing something useful to the system. Talk about PCPs in COVID. How has this measure held up in the midst of a pandemic? We actually have fielded it twice during the pandemic, once in March and once in July. And it has not only held up really well, we revalidated it each time. Usually among the 11 items, there's one item that performs worse than it did pre-COVID, and that's the coordinating of care across multiple places. And this is understandable. Lots of specialties closed down during COVID. So yeah, it's very hard to coordinate that care. There are two items that remained fairly neutral, and actually those have to do with access and taking your family into account. And every other item on this measure has actually increased during COVID. This is a a remarkable story of quiet heroicism among primary care clinicians. What they did was, I think, extraordinary, and we see that actually reflected in patient assessments. Access did not get hit during COVID for primary care. I bet if you look at those other quality measures, if you look at recorded A1C, or if you look at recorded BMI or blood pressures, there's a reason why companies said, you know what, we're not going to pay attention to that right now. When patients aren't going in, you can't gather that. Does that mean quality has suddenly plummeted across the U.S.? No. It means that those things are vulnerable to environment, but access, coordination, comprehensiveness, the continuity, these things that we know to be important to quality care, they can be maintained. And primary care did that in spades. Is there anything I forgot to ask you? I do think it's worth noting that while primary care has maintained its presence and actually been able to improve its connection with patients, their income has gone down dramatically because the payment model is about paying them for face-to-face visits and it's about paying fee-for-service. So care coordination, comprehensiveness, those things are not actually reimbursed. We need to do better. We need to figure out how to help this platform. I had interviews with David Chase and Guy Culpepper that sort of Ah, touch on these exact same points. So if anyone is interested in hearing more about them, I would definitely suggest to go back and listen to those two shows. Rebecca Etz, PhD, where can people go for more information about what you are doing? They can go to our website. It is green-center.org. It's the Larry Green Center. And you'll see in the top menu bar, we've got special pages for the measure. And you can learn more about our organization if you like. We love partnering with other companies. Dr. Etz, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Oh, you are so welcome, Stacy. Thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.